when you do not have sufficient evidence to warrant your belief, or when the evidence is actually against your belief, then you have to deny entire bodies of evidence. They're biology denialists. I've been threatening this for quite some time, but I'm about to throw down some Boghossian moves. That's Peter Boghossian, and he's an American philosopher who taught at Portland State University. Alongside Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, he was part of the Grievance Studies project that made up fake academic papers with ridiculous topics to expose the way that peer review publications accepted anything, providing it was woke or trendy enough. I'm just summarising, of course there's more to it than that, but these included papers suggesting dogs engaged in rape culture and that Hitler's Mein Kampf should be rewritten in feminist language. The majority of papers were accepted into major publications. Down the line, Peter constantly felt pushback from the powers that be for speaking out against illiberalism. He believes students are not being taught to think critically. After a student complained about him, it was recommended by the Global Diversity and Inclusion Team, or whatever they are, that he receive coaching. He continued to try to fight a liberalism from the inside, but found it futile and resigned from his role as professor. Peter has long focused on atheism, critical thinking and scientific scepticism and always wanted to teach his students to engage with ideas and understand other viewpoints and sides. He coined the term street epistemology for a set of conversational techniques you can use to help people examine their strongly held beliefs. He now carries those experiments out at university campuses around the states and you can find the often controversial and fiery exchanges on his namesake YouTube channel, Peter Boghossian. So go watch those. He also co-authored the book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, a very practical guide. So do consider purchasing that if you enjoy today's episode. Um, it is just, it's the title, A Very Practical Guide is the second part of the title. It's not me just saying it's a practical guide, although uh, it very much is. Follow Peter on Twitter, Peter Boghossian. Get me on there too, Andrew Gold underscore OK. We had been trying to set this up, this conversation, for years, so it was a thrill to finally get to speak to Peter and record it. We had major tech problems as well beforehand, so I thank him for staying with me despite an hour of messing around online during his very, very busy schedule. As a result, I didn't ask Peter to stick around for a bonus section, but I do have one or two each week that I put up, which you can hear on patreon.com slash andrewgold. That also helps me to run this podcast. But now... You're on the edge of street epistemology and woke culture with Peter Boghossian. You're, you, you are Peter Boghossian. You're the philosophy professor at Portland State University. You specialize in, well, yeah, sorry, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. specialize in critical thinking ethics and Socratic method. Tell me what the Socratic method is. Uh, it's just a way to help people figure out if the confidence they have for their beliefs is warranted in those beliefs. It's a way to help people figure out uh, which true is too strong, but uh, how to have fewer false beliefs and how to accurately calibrate their confidence levels to those to the evidence. And, and how does one go about that? In, in terms of the questioner or the questionee? I was, I was going to get on to, I guess, you know, uh, the, the street epistemology. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And I guess that's, that's part of that, isn't it? Yeah. So street epistemology is a book I, I published in my first book in 2013. And it basically teaches people at that time was focused on religion and well not religion on developing reliable epistemologies for 
people's God beliefs and superstitious beliefs more generally. Epistemology is just how you know what you think you know. And so, excuse me, I took those techniques and um, advanced them in my second book. I developed them with prison from prison inmates and talking to religious people for years and just, I don't, literally tens of thousands of students over crowded classrooms, every context you, you can imagine. And then in my second book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, I even further rounded that out from literature and hostage negotiations, cult exiting, applied epistemology, various sub-disciplines, sub-sub-disciplines of psychology. And so basically, yeah, so so that's, so, man, I just, just didn't pluck it out of my ear. Right? <laughs> <I> <laughs> Has, uh, yeah. Yeah, so so let's say, and I know I imagine it's much more complicated than what we could be able to talk about, you know, in one in one sitting. But let's say I've got a friend who's who's quite uh, religious minded. Uh, let's say it's um oh the Arthur Conan Doyle, and he believes he's seen um fairies and that fairies are real. How how would you go about telling him they're not? Well, you wouldn't tell him that they're not. That's that's the essence of the Socratic method and street epistemology is not to tell anybody anything. It's to see if the reasons they have for their conclusions justify their confidence. And so the first thing you do is you'd understand the claim. You know, what do you mean by that? Because maybe he's what he means by fairies is not what you mean by fairies. You know, I have this fairy like the people in um, Iceland have this like actual fairy fairy. Maybe he means they're just kind of who knows what he means. So you have to figure out what the claim is. And then you have to figure out how he knows the claim. And so I guess you say he, he would see them. And then you, you could do some version of the, it's what's called the outsider test. Uh, uh, it's, it has a long pedigree in the literature, but it's John W. Loftus really refined it to, to um, an amazing degree. And it's, um, well, if somebody else gave their testimony, would you conclude that their testimony is sufficient to warrant their confidence in the belief. So it's a version of the outsider test. Um, but there, you know, what, 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 uh, under what conditions could the belief be false or would you be willing to revise it? That's a kind of disconfirmation question. In the literature it's called the feasibility. You could do that. Uh, and so basically you're just asking somebody target, targeted questions to see if the confidence they have for their belief is warranted. Do you find people often move from their point of view? Um, Often, no. You know, I, I'm releasing these videos on my YouTube channel in which we, oh, have you seen those? Yeah, which we put uh, painter's tape on the sidewalk and we just basically ask people questions. And then we ask people if it's like on a Likert scale, strongly disagree to strongly agree. And they, we ask people what would change their mind. And if the people on the other end of the of the spectrum have offered, like, what would you need to see? them say or do you understand that's the key thing from the philosopher you're going to harm us do you understand their position not you agree but do you understand so do people often change their mind i had a few of those that i've done in which the whole lines have moved i think those are coming out this week people have moved all over the place but the secret is took me 25 years of publishing reading studying all kinds of literature to give you what I'm going to give you in under 60 seconds. People don't stand on the lines because of the evidence they have They They stand on the lines 
because they think that standing on a particular line makes them a better person. So they stand on the lines for moral and not epistemological reasons. So they have the moral intuition first, and then they look to the epistemic landscape, you know, evidence, what have you, argument to justify the moral positions that they already have. I can see that in some of the the, the video. I mean, the videos make for great watching, by the way. It's just I'm completely hooked watching that. Yeah, so many. Yeah, I'm, I'm, so many people are just completely loving those. I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised how much people actually love those. Well, some of it, I think, is the it's just really nice to watch people sort of change their minds and see if they will. And I guess you're watching it thinking, where would I stand on that line? And then there's also the thrill, I suppose, of watching uh, people when there might be a clash. And there is that one particular video, um, and I think it was you'd written something like, um, you know, there are two genders. Where do you stand on this line of what you believe? Do you think it's is that is that sort of part of where society's gone? Because you, it sounds like you started by uh, talking about maybe religious beliefs as in God and stuff like that, and and now the magical thinking seems to be about uh, some of the social justice or, or whatever one might call it. Is it why has that happened? Boy, we, that's a whole other hour of a podcast. But, um, well, that's a very long, complicated question. Okay, so the first thing to know from the 30,000 feet up is that the culture war has fundamentally changed. I wrote a piece about this in the American mind called Culture War 2.0, The Great Realignment. It's not um, atheists versus Christians or should evolution be taught in schools or is there sufficient evidence to justify any of the claims from the Bible or the any any holy book for that matter, but specifically the Bible and and less so the the Quran. Uh, the the culture war has changed uh, to three things, but basically, what are the rules of engagement? How do people engage each other? So before, when Richard Dawkins or Jerry Coyne or someone would give us a talk, nobody is going to call them a rapist. No one's going to ask for their tenure. The creationists wanted to debate them, and they. You know, no one's going to bring a, a bullhorn in and blow it. So the rules of engagement have changed. That's one thing. The other thing is that the the uh, role that truth plays in our lives, whether or not there's a correspondence to truth, correspondence theories of truth, it's called in philosophy. So whether or not we, we can know the truth or truth is just as the, as the postmodernists say, a function of a language game or your embedded discourse or Foucault has one word for it, power knowledge. So that's. That's a piece of it as well. And so what you see is some atheists and, and intersectionality, the role, for example, that um, one's identity markers, things that have an identity level salience play in one's belief life. Um, so those, those are the three hallmarks of the new culture war. Um, and you, what you see is some atheists and some Christians aligning against other atheists and other Christians and the fault line in the culture or the schism, if, if you will, is along the lines of intersectionality or um, intersectionality generally, but um, crit critical social justice or sometimes called social justice more specifically. So that's one part of it. Ask me the question again, because there's a ask me the question one more time, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, just just it's such a long it's such a complicated it's such a good question. But, the, but yeah, just ask me one more time. It's madness. I'm just getting at, you know, it's interesting that you started looking at what well, it sounds like you started looking at magical beliefs and stuff. And it's taken you to this place that's right at the heart of our culture that that they would say, and I'm skirting around the word woke, uh, because no one likes the word woke anymore. And you can't use that word. But uh, 
Yeah, well, they used it for themselves, and then it became a pejorative figure, and they don't want they don't want it said back at them now. Right. I just read Andrew Doyle's new manuscript, and he talks about it. He gives a really nice history of the of the word woke. But so so the other thing is, if you believe, um, <clears throat> if you believe that, uh, so so what is one's relationship to truth? And if you believe that language is a form of violence, which inter inter interestingly, they believe silence is also a form of violence. But if you believe that language is a form of violence or that you just can, it's it's called privilege preserving epistemic pushback, that people use it to preserve their own privilege, that power always seeks to preserve itself, then, then you believe that language is a way to discharge these protective impulses to preserve one's power and one's social status in the hierarchy. Because that's all it is for the, these the woke people, the critical social justice devotees, and you see that you see that in the in the uh, video of the social workers when they come down. Actually, I just want to say, you know, Andrew Doyle was a teacher at my school, um, and he's been on this point. He's coming back on to discuss that book. It's a great, it's a wonderful, wonderful. But I've never looked up so many words in my life than <laughs> I have in that book. He's an astonishing. It's it's erudite without being pedantic. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, but. That's that's funny because I thought you guys. I mean, but I say you guys, you Helen and and James, who also on on here as well. You guys have very sort of highbrow erudite uh, language that I have to look up sometimes. Whereas I found Andrew's free speech quite a bit of a quite a breeze, but it was quite short. And that that one, the free speech book he wrote. This is a very different book. This is a this is he's just so learned. It's astonishing in this book, um, and he's such a humble guy. You don't get that from. You don't you don't really get that you don't see that uh, when you speak with him but he's become a really good friend i'm gonna say you're gonna go back to yeah so spiritual oh the substitute yeah the substitution hypothesis i got so the idea is that is the default in human nature uh, is the default in humanity that they just have to believe something superstitious or they have to kind of cling on to something and when the old gods die we see, uh, particularly in the atheist movement, I mean, all the uh, almost everything in atheism, by the way, is now woke. There's only one atheist organization of which I'm on the board with with your other guests, Michael Shermer, Gad Sad, Colin Wright. It's like a who's who of, uh, but that's an explicitly anti-woke atheist organization. There's no reason for anything else other than there's insufficient evidence to warrant belief in God, but if I were shown the evidence, I'd change my mind. That's all you need. That's it. There's no, it's not coupled with anything. It's not in a suite of other beliefs. It's not bundled. That's, it's not even about secularism. It's pretty straightforward. There's really nothing to add to that. But anyway, but that's the idea of the substitution hypothesis is that the default state is just belief in mysticism and superstition, et cetera. And once one belief is extirpated or falls into ill repute, then another one comes in and takes its place. And that's what we, that's, one of the things that we see now with the critical social justice movement and Andrew's book does an incredible job at dissecting that. Um, and I think, I think, uh, I think I, 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 you know, not to be the hipster of this whole thing, but I think James Lindsay and I first came up with that idea in 2014 when we published privileges, the original sin and uh, John McWhorter's woke racism hits that note very, very nicely as well. But now it's, more or less accepted, although the people who are devotees and proponents of the new religion don't consider it a religion for the most part, but it has all the hallmarks of a religion. But that's another conversation. It's really interesting. Um, John was on here as well, but he refused to put the video. He didn't want video. So he's tired of looking at his own um, face, but he's brilliant. But um, 
it, I do a lot of uh, people who were from cults, um, Jehovah's Witness and uh, all different ones. And most of them, but and I don't want to say all because a lot of listeners to this podcast are people who didn't go that way. But most of them do go very, very woke afterwards. And it's been said to them, and I've sort of hinted at it, like, well, you know, is this a replacement for religion? And, and they get very, very upset um, by that. Yeah, I'd ask them why. Why do they get upset by that? Yeah. And what differentiates <laughs> it? What differentiates it from a religion? And say some of the things about religion that you don't like. And for that, I wouldn't focus on the claims. I'd focus on the epistemologies, the way that people come to know things. Are there any similarities in the way that someone, for example, you never say you, you know, are there any similarities in that someone who would believe some, some of the tenets of critical social justice and some religion, are there any similarities in those epistemologies and the way people come to those beliefs? So you can, you can pose those questions without invoking a defensive posture for the most part. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask you to, um, and you, I don't know if you if you can, but but an- analyze my headspace, and I think it's a headspace that a lot of people have at the moment, which is that we're sort of classical liberals. I think you are one as well. Anyone can do whatever they want. I don't want to, you know, gay people, whatever you want to do. Um, it annoys me when people say you can change your sex or whatever it might be, or they say, I suppose they say the word gender. Why does it annoy me? Why am I? Why does it bother me? Why can't I just go like leave? Uh, it doesn't matter. Well, well, why does it bother you? Yeah, that's why I want to know. I think it's about truth. That's what I'm telling myself. If if there was a magic box and you can open the magic box and we'll tell you the answer to any question, but you're forced to answer that question, why would the magic box tell you that it bothers you so much? Wait, say that again. There's a magic box that has access to objective truth and subjective truth as well, the subjective thoughts of other people. And you, you, you can ask the magic box any question, but you ask the question, why does, why does this whole gender thing bother me so much? What would the magic box tell you for why it bothers you so much? Well, I, like I said, I think, I think it's about truth and that's why I hated religion as a child. I hated all the religious stuff. It's like, because it's just, we need, if we don't get to truth, it all goes into a mess. But maybe the magic box would say things that I don't even realize like, oh, because you're a bigot or you've got some bigoted views or I don't know what. Um, okay. So when you say it bothers you on a scale from one to 10, how much does it bother you? Like, and then give me some markers there. Like how much does the mass murder in Ukraine bother you on a scale from one to 10? Slightly less than, than people having slightly different political views to me for some reason. Huh, uh, so, so, uh, yeah, the, the, I, but, but I know that's ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? I know that's uh, mad. Yeah. 
or just or just in, but in other words like how much does inflation bother you how much does you know the so you know millions of people earning under a dollar a day <clears throat> actually more than that hundreds of millions like so how much does this bother you in relation to other things global climate change like how, how much does the, i mean do you spend every day obsessing about it or thinking about it constantly no it's not that it would be more when i perceive people to be maybe you know virtue signaling around me and they think they're right and they're saying oh yeah there's there's 50 genders um and they're saying a lot of things that i know aren't quite right about the woke stuff. and i know you know empirically i know it's a lot of it's not right it really winds me up and probably more than a lot of those actually much more serious themes that you're bringing up and why i, I wish i knew why that i guess that's some tribality in in me is that a word tribality well um here's the thing that it's interesting <clears throat> have you ever wondered why with all of the problems we have in the world today serious problems have you ever wondered why so many people are obsessed about racism as opposed to other problems is it is it a tribe thing well um i mean think about it this way when the when the um when isis was selling actual slaves like literally actual slaves men women and children and bizarre so we know that we have testimonies of people we have actual videos of this why why weren't any gender studies departments whose primary focus is activism why weren't the social workers who came down and screamed at me why weren't any of those people talking about or advocating or trying to help those people why were they just more upset about gender imbalances at conferences um probably maybe a mixture between sort of orientalism and 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 um feeling good about themselves yeah so i'll cut to the chase so what i would normally do if we weren't on zoom and we didn't spend 40 minutes fucking around with the sound <laughs> i'd keep asking you questions to see to refine your beliefs but i'll just throw out a hypothesis it's because this is the cultural milieu right now bigotry is bad ra racism it's just this is what is the and people don't really choose what they believe for the most part. Um, that's why the Socratic method is such a powerful tool. Uh, but this is just what's in the, it just, this is just memetically, you know, Dawkins talks about in the selfish gene. That's where, you know, the whole meme comes from this. These ideas have just been memed out and they've, they, they've taken a significant portion of our, they've overridden like the, like I was just watching uh, Orville uh the other night it's kind of like more star trekky than star trek i'm a huge science fiction fan but anyway you know it's like overridden the the uh, architecture on the ship like this thing is overridden so that, that's what's kind of happened to all of our brains and it takes a lot to re you can't resist it on your own you need some external intervention which by the way that's again the socratic method it's an external intervention you need some kind of an epistemological intervention to prevent not you in particular, but everybody living in every cultural period, because we have a myopia about the things we believe, thinking that they're universal, timeless, eternal truths, but they just happen to be morally fashionable. So why it bothers you, what I would suggest to you is it just an epistemological exercise is to get a, a line, write a line on a piece of paper, like an actual physical piece of paper, and then just start writing stuff down like, oh, you know, this, you know, the fact that X number of dogs are euthanized a year, this bothers me. And, you know, right, one, three, five, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then just write that in and then see where the gender thing falls. And then um, I would suggest trying to ask yourself if that, if the, if the, you know, like so let's say you put it between a seven and an eight, just making that up, if that is warranted for concern, given all the other things you wrote down in the paper, and then how would you figure that out?
Yeah, I think it's small small beans compared to some of those other things if I really think rationally about it and take the emotion out of it. Do you find yourself getting bothered by this stuff? It's had a huge effect in your career. Yeah. Uh, okay, you, hold, hold on a second. So um, let's not switch. Okay, so let's say that you did that. And so you said that you know that it's not rational for it to bother you as much as it does. What would it take for you for that to bother you a little less? Like, what would you take to be less take f- f- to elicit less of a reaction to that from you? It would. I think it would take people who are who are annoying me in that moment to be able to to say, like, obviously, we know this is not real science, but we want to believe that it's true. And then I'd go, oh, OK. Yeah. Um, so I think part of it, it's, it's in your face and part of it, it's just conspicuously false. I had a, um, at University of Austin, I, I got to know Deidre McCluskey, who's trans. Uh, she's really like smart and amazing. And then I got to know Kathleen Stock, had dinner with both of them. And uh, unfortunately, I did not go to their debate. Um, but I, I think... I think these are, in one sense, they're complicated, but in another sense, it's because they're not complicated that it's just so frustrating that people cling tenaciously to these beliefs that they're unwilling or unable to revise those beliefs. They have systems of support. So I'm guessing that this is what bothers you about it because this is what bothers me about it. There are systems of support for uh, institutionalized systems of support and mechanisms that bend the truth, you know, NPR, I'm going to do a big thing. Hope we can talk about that a little bit. I mean, NPR is a huge part of that. Any kind of left leaning media, but the right leaning media, they have their nonsense too, but this is a little more conspicuously false, a little more in your face, and it has institutional support coupled with that. You have um, activists with just such um confidence such mm-hmm. uh you know bra- and not, uh what's it called a chess beating confidence <laughs> in these uh, i was trying to make a pun on chess to chess but uh didn't work but but such um unbelievable confidence that is radically miscalibrated to the evidence and so of course that's going to be frustrating to you it's going to be frustrating to anybody who cares about truth and that's exactly the reason that they can't use the same instruments to get to the truth because they couldn't believe what they believe. So they have to invent their own epistemologies, right? If, if you hold a conclusion tenaciously or on a scale on nine, a scale from one to 10, but you only have evidence to go from seven, then either you need to be offended or upset or something, or you need to invent your own epistemology. You would need to invent a new way of knowing what quote unquote knowing um, that justifies your confidence in the belief. And that's what we see now. We see a turn away from objective truth. We see a turn towards subjective way of ways of knowing, towards lived experience, towards positionality. Actually, all going back to that, all the buzzwords, it's like a buzz soup in that video. All of those things, because there's insufficient evidence for a rational person. What do I mean by a rational person? That there'd be a con- convergence of opinion uh, from independent inquirers. Walter Kaufman switches it, the philosopher Walter Kaufman, from a a reasonable person to every rational person. In their case, 
no rational person would believe it. So you need to make up a new epistemological tool so that you can justify the confidence you have in your belief. So that's why I think you're pissed off. I got a good example of that, I think, because I, I spoke just a few days ago, I was having this debate with a friend in, in a pub and uh, um, it was, again, it was the gender thing, just because he was saying trans women are women. And I was going, but but when you say that, do you mean, are you just sort of saying, you mean they are literally women? He's going, yes. And so I used, well, then why does why I would ask why he used the word trans? Well, that's that's one way I did is basically the same thing. I used the Matt Walsh thing of because it's such an easy one. Just OK, so what is a woman? And it, it's amazing how that stumps people because then they go and you realize they haven't even thought through. So go, you're very passionate that trans women, they are this thing. Well, what is it to you? Because I could tell you, I could tell, say XX chromosome. There are several other ways I might be able to define a woman. What are you saying it is? And that seems to stump them, but it didn't change their minds because two, two of them, and they both just went after a while, they went, it's a social construct. Woman is a social construct. And I guess that's what you're saying. They have to change the epistemology. Well, yeah, they have to make up stuff, basically. Change the epistemology is just an academic or fancy way of saying, like, make up new ways of knowing. Uh, if I don't, you don't mind me asking, were both of your friends straight? Yes. Would they sleep with a trans woman? Uh, I think I asked that at some point in the debate and they ignored, they sort of moved away from it. <laughs> Well, I would ask them, yes, is no. And you know what? I you know, Here's a, a, a technique you can use. A ask me that question. Would you, I, would you sleep with a trans woman? No. Right. Would you sleep with a trans woman? Mm, not knowingly, no. Okay, so what just happened was, it doesn't matter what the question was, but what just happened in that situation is you model the behavior. It's a, it's a wonder, I wouldn't call it a trick, but it's just a wonderful tool to have in the toolbox. If someone's obfuscating or won't answer, you ask them to answer it to ask you the question and then you prod them ask me the question once you ask you answer with a yes or no and then you ask the question back to them most people will model it and if they said no then you would say well then you don't actually believe trans women or women right and if they said yes then you could further explore that question man the whole thing's so crazy. And what you were saying before was interesting about, you know, they don't have a go at Dawkins. Well, they do a little bit because he's gotten in, he's weighed in on this stuff as well. Um, after it was the religious stuff, like the old religious stuff. And now they it's have a pathological evil. hatred of Dawkins. Yeah. 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 He was well, on the that, show as well. But they, but they have to, though, in a sense, right? for, for a number of reasons. You know, um, I don't think we, I did a few events with Richard. We, I don't think we talked about this. Uh, because that this was before the craziness. This is like 2013, 14, before the craziness, the madness completely took hold of society. But but when, when you do not have sufficient evidence to warrant your belief or when the evidence is actually against your belief, then you have to deny entire bodies of evidence. Biology, they're biology denialists. Universally, they're bi like creationists. They're just biology denialists. And so people kicked off at you, though, as well. What, what went on at university that led to you leaving oh dude i've talked about that so much i'm just kind of tired of it just this institutional capture you know just um just just a work environment i mean just watch those videos i mean you can see from that video that's what i lived every day I, every day with people who were completely beholden to an ideology and if you didn't agree or or even ask questions like what was evidence for something they wouldn't even present the evidence. I mean, how could they? they don't have any evidence, but uh, other than lived experience or testimony, um, but they think you're a bad person. And so, I mean, it was it was a just dis a disgusting. It was like going to it was like opposite land. It was like going to a place 
where you should be educated, you know, uh, educare lead out of, you know, like lead out of Plato's cave and into the light and whatever. It was like opposite land. You know, Portland State University is like going to a place to become more ignorant and more indoctrinated and less thoughtful and less reflective and less rational and being in a community in which, uh, um, you know, fear was the dominant fear of speaking out, fear of sincere people asking questions, fear of being accused as a bigot, as a bigot fear for me, obviously constantly of being brought up on another accusation trial, et cetera. I just, you know, leaving that cesspool is the best thing that ever happened to me. It's just an ideological cesspool. Best thing that ever happened to me. So when you go around making the YouTube videos, are you sort of, inv- are you allowed to just, I mean, I guess any, are they public? People can just walk onto a university and, and do that stuff? Uh, no. So, so the, I learned a lot of lessons. Next time I do this, I'm not going to do this um, with any partners. Although I love our partners have been great, truly fantastic. But the problem is, Two things. One, I wanted to partner with left-leaning and right-leaning groups. Uh, no left-leaning groups with partner for the exercise. Um, but of course, they can't partner for the exercise. I mean, that only makes sense, right? It, when you understand the cultural issues, they can't. They literally can't because they believe that debate, language, all that stuff is race, inherently racist. So speaking is not the way to get to the problem. Asking questions is, you know, as I told said said before, the problems with that. So. Then we we did with Turning Point two events with Ayan Hersi Ali. I just did an event with her a couple of weeks, last week. Actually, she's just an she's just a wonderful person. And then I saw her the week before that at the University of Austin, where she teaches as well. Um, so we partnered with her foundation, Aha, and like six, seven, eight other foundations. But the people I want to talk to don't go to those things. So we just need to put it out in the sidewalk. I want to start doing these at conservative places. Like I'm thinking of going into the deep south or something and just setting them up on a on, on a public street and doing it there. Yeah, that would be great. How did you how do you do, do you find that rage? Because I watched you when people came down and it was the one about the genders and someone said, um, hi, I'm just curious. And as soon as that it was like, OK, you're not curious. You're angry at Peter here. They really were. And you stayed so calm. And I was watching that going, how has he stayed calm? Is there actually a like, rage inside you and you're keeping it down or are you able to just be Zen? Um, I'm not sure that's the right framing of the question. Uh, but I noticed that you changed your voice. Um, and it's funny how many people have said to me, wow, they all speak in the same voice. Right. So look, you remember when you said you're, you, you were at a bar with your friends. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that, that you, you, you guys are at the bar and you're hanging out. Some guy comes in, you live in the, where do you live? Uh, Bristol. Oh, on the Island with Helen there. Okay. And mm. okay. And Douglas. And uh, Richard, everybody. Okay, Andrew, Andrew and everyone. everybody, everybody, everybody <laughs> all the cool people. Chris lives there. Oh yeah, uh, constant. Yeah, um, yeah. And some guy comes in and he, he he barges in and he you know runs to the bathroom and he starts chomping on a urine, urinal cake, and then he walks up to you guys and he he gets very angrily accuses you of stealing his cockroach collection. Are you going to be mad at that guy? <laughs> Uh, that particular guy, may, maybe not, because he's so ridiculous. Yeah. So you, you think that he has some kind of a mental health issue, right? Yeah. Okay, so I think these people have mental health issues. So I'm not mad at them. I'm, I'm also genuinely curious as to what they believe. I'm genuinely curious as to what to understand whether or not the evidence they have 
just for their beliefs justifies the confidence. But I j- legitimately want to know what they like. I actually do want to know. That's not an act. That's not her thoughts, you know, um, sincerity. Like, I sincerely want to know what they believe and why they believe it. And if they know something I don't know, I want to know what it is. But clearly uh, they know to a certain extent they know what they believe, but they can't. They're not. They're literally incapable of engaging like that guy. Um, he couldn't answer a straight question. He'd always change it. So I was thinking about that. So that's what happens when you've not been schooled in the Socratic method. Someone will ask you a question. You'll talk about something totally unrelated because you can't retether because you don't have the tool. Not only do you not have the tools to retether the conversation back to what the conversation is actually about, but you train your mind, you kind of dehabituate it to latch it back onto the conversation. So almost by definition, you can't track what people are saying. So I don't I'm not mad at those folks. I, I'm not upset. Um, I really think that they they are they have a, a collective mental health issues. They're in an institution that gives the imprimatur of knowledge. They are uh, in a kind of a cult where certain beliefs have been idea laundered and they're looking to the, the literature. Uh, I think they have very good impulses. I think that that. Um, I think that a lot of their core, that there are kernels of truth throughout. I do think trans people get treated like shit. I do think that there has been a horrific uh, history of racism. Uh, I, I mean, I homophobia, bigotry, Alan Turing. You could go on and on. That, that's he's from your island too. Yeah. So there's no, there's no. Um, that's indisputable. Uh, so the question is that that those kernels override. The moral mind overrides the rational mind. Pinker talks about that too. John Hyde talks about that. So I'm not, no, I'm not mad at it. I'm not upset with them. I'm not, I'm curious as to what they believe. And as you could see, they're incapable of any kind of sustained conversation. And, and just for the record, I've repeatedly asked people, you know, now I am feel myself get a little frustrated. I've repeatedly asked people to have conversations with me who refuse to have conversations with me, even after I give them the questions, like here are the questions. And again, um, the only people who seem to be more than willing to have conversations with me who disagree are religious people, Christians in particular. I was just going to say the difference with the person in the pub is it's just one person who's clearly a lone actor, whereas this is a whole group of people who are supposed to be university educated who at the moment, uh, I would say, are winning, at least in the UK, they're winning sort of the mainstream uh, culture war in a sense. I mean, the BBC, Channel 4, they, you know, we don't really have a Fox News, not not a big one anyway. So that would that would probably wind me up. So two so two things. So uh, the the answer to left wing, as the University of Austin Pano, the president of the University of Austin, always says, the, the answer to left wing ideological capture of institutions is not to create a right wing institution like Hillsdale or Liberty. The answer is to create a, a truth seeking institution. And when you say they're university educated, you you said that as if it's a good thing. No, it's a bad thing. It's the cause of their indoctrination, right? So they're finding other people. And personally, to be very blunt with you, I personally believe that they found communities of other people who have mental disorders. And a lot of that, those mental disorders come, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but my, my working hypothesis for at least some of this, like if you had a pie chart, it'd be, I don't know, like, I don't know, maybe a pie chart isn't the right tool to analyze it. But there are people who are in general uh, feel weak in the world. This kind of Nietzsche talks about this a little bit. And uh, they feel weak in the world, maybe impotent in the world to change it. And so they blame systems or systems of power on the world for their own failings. And then they get together with other people who are 
think that they should be more successful than they are. Um, and they, um, they form these uh, communities. I just, it's such an over, overused word, but they form these groups of individuals. I suppose in this case, it actually is a community and they, they, they um, go to academic institutions and they become activists. Um, it's, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible problem. And I really, I really pity them. I really feel bad for them. You know, I put out a tweet a while ago and it's true. People's ideologies manifest in their bodies, you know? Um, so if you've ever looked at neo-Nazis, you know, you see like these huge steroided folks, my dog, uh, these huge steroided folks. And then you see these people with just poor body habitus. You see that with a lot of woke people. They just have terrible body habitus. Um, uh, and, you know, I so the good thing about getting out of the institution, I really don't give a shit anymore. If, if people want to complain about anything in this podcast, please feel free to write to the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at Portland State University and list your complaints and in great detail. Um, but it's true. Ideologies manifest themselves in bodies. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of of that before. I'm just thinking my, my own body is a bit average but I, I i get i get what you're saying do you wonder ever i wonder if there's a and i've said this before on the podcast so apologies to people bored by me talking if there's a sort of pr issue with the non-woke side by often calling them snowflakes or, or it sort of feeds into what they want to believe about themselves anyway that they're more empathetic than anyone else when really they're behaving in ways that i would say are, are actually quite bigoted yeah i don't know if it's a pr problem but remember these folks have had decades since the 70s, actually more than decades. Oh, well, it's, no, it's not quite yet. So whatever that is, I don't want to think about it, but how many decades is? Anyway, to change language and change rules of language, to just to go back to something, there's a kind of disposition that these folks have. Well, there's a voice. You hear, you hear it in those videos. There's a kind of a voice that they have. And they all speak the same. But I've been doing jujitsu seriously for a long time. I have not met almost anybody who's woke. I don't, I mean, there's even kind of a quote unquote Antifa gym, but they're not even Antifa gym. They're just people who are caught in the outer periphery of the orbit of the ideology. But um, I think it to do jujitsu, for example, you, you really need a set of attitudinal dispositions to, uh, you know, work hard to place yourself in a position where other people can submit you to. I mean, it is a very difficult complicated thing and you have to get used to being claustrophobic so there are certain dispositions that's why i think you know i i just don't see that in the woke it's also interesting to me just as an aside i um i watch a lot of these videos of like antifa attacking people and i'm like holy shit like one of these days man you are gonna run into the wrong guy like you are i mean these people have no skills at all and it's always interesting to me that, that kind of moral certainty manifesting itself in physically bullying people, yelling at them and pushing them. I mean, that is just, it's hard to explain if someone's never felt it, but when someone is on top of you, I mean, violence is a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, it's a horrifying thing. I just, um, the book, The Gift of Violence from Pitchnall and Press, Matt Thornton is coming out with that. The best book on the subject. It's phenomenal. But uh, he's also my jujitsu teacher. He's uh, Conor McGregor's coach's coach. You know, Conor from the island next to your island? Yeah. So so uh, 
uh, he's his coach's coach. His coach is John Kavanaugh. But when he gets on top of you, and some of these guys get on top, of you, I cannot explain to you how horrifying it is. It did suffocating, horrifying, and and you know you can make it stop anytime you want, but that's the horrifying thing about street violence. It's like you can't. There's no tapping out. Right. And so these people are getting together in groups with the hubris of youth. I don't know. think they're immortal, what they think, but they don't know real violence. They don't know how horrible it is. And if, you know, I invite them to go to an MMA studio and, and, you know, instead of beating up on shop owners or people, there's more than enough opportunities for you to fight in a cage with people who actually know what you're doing. They're doing. How do you feel after, you know, you, you've spoken to so many different kinds of people about culture wars over the years where how what do you feel about people's or humanity's empathy because i i sometimes wonder you know before you were say we were saying you know i seem to care more about something trivial like a culture war or whatever than i do about people dying in other parts of the world so i get a bit nihilistic sometimes where do you stand on that uh there's people have tremendous empathy in group hmm, what does that mean uh whatever they're a tribe is you know their ideological tribe or their perceived tribe um, it's amazing to me when i watch those youtube videos of uh, of ukraine uh of people bombing each other and shooting each other i mean if those people didn't know each other and they're walking across the street and someone got hit by a car they'd want to help them you know but th there's a there's a kind of tribalism in the broadest possible sense that in the in-group, if people are like you, you want to help them and, and people tend to be compassionate. But I think social media has done damage. I also think that the critical social justice ideology has done a great a damage and disservice. Intersectionality has been terrible looking at people in terms of their immutable characteristics in instead of their personhood. Uh, dividing people into ever smaller categories when we should be doing exactly the opposite, which is super, super we wrote about this in the how to have impossible conversations going up, looking at commonalities in people and superordinate, superordinate identities. And so we, we, we're creating a kind of toxic soup in which the bounds in the fabric of society are becoming disentangled by the ideology. And that's the root, right? That does disrupt and dismantle. You know, overthrow the systems, this power hierarchies. I, the reason I I thought about that was because of the abortion video. There's a couple of abortion ones on your channel, as as well, and you get people who I guess are on that side, uh, progressive or whatever, and the way they talk about you know a baby that would be born a day later. Uh, screw it, screw, it, just throw it away or, or or whatever, you know. Oh yeah, so. Uh, uh... I said to my team that the abortion thing is kind of stale. And so he said, well, what about abortion in, in, in uh, the third trimester? And then I said, well, what about abortion one day before it's due? And so I said, yes, yeah, so it's not to skew the. And again, it, it's not about what anybody it's not about the truth in this case. It's just about like, well, is the confidence somebody has in that justified by the evidence? And again, in moral beliefs, you almost never find that. So people are standing on the line for their own moral impulses. But the abortion debate is interesting. It never. So the problem with the abortion thing is that there's just so many underlying undergirding variables and factors that it's difficult to tease those out. So as a general rule, I, I personally don't like to do those. Um, although what have you but yeah the abortion the abortion question tends to be very interesting because people come into it with a host of baked in assumptions 
Yeah, it was it was a really interesting one actually because I found myself going back and forward a little bit and then and then watching these people and so, again it just felt like they lacked empathy a little bit which is something you can throw at both sides and throw at anyone I suppose but do you ever worry I guess about these are young students they're sort of I guess they're they're still developing what they really think I mean I wouldn't want uh, people judging me on what I thought when I was 18, 19, 20 years old do you are you concerned about sort of putting out the YouTube videos and that what the you know to the YouTube mob the comments they could be mean no what i'm concerned about is uh, is um ideology the ideological factories we've created i'm concerned that belief revision is not a virtue in our academic institutions i'm uh, and what we need to do in our culture is to change the well a lot of things but in the context of this conversation you know if someone says i don't know they need to be rewarded for that when someone changes lines and I noticed when I did this exercise at the University of Austin uh, in Texas, when spontaneously the other the students in the room, when someone changed their mind, clapped. I didn't elicit that. I didn't tell them to clap. That's exactly what should happen. It doesn't matter if you agree or disagree, but we need to remake a virtue of changing changing our minds. And until that happens, we're never going to get out of this mess. There's no way someone at 18 can, there's no way any, forget 18. There's no way someone 50, almost 56 getting old uh, is, uh, or old, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. There's no way you could come to, to the right answers about things. And anybody who thinks that they have, I mean, you need to be incredibly skeptical and suspicious of these people. It's like, it's, you know, it's a kind of version of the same people who believe that you shouldn't, you can get all your answers from one book. I'm 33, and I, I thought the other day I'm pretty much middle-aged unless, I mean, uh, hopefully I'll live longer than 66. Nah, not yet. 40. 40 is middle-aged. But so yeah, me, I have, I have more, far more of my life is behind me than in front of me. Hopefully not that, uh, hopefully, uh, I don't know, about <laughs> that far. But um, yeah, so, so this is, a, these are perilous times. And the, the one thing that's making that worse is certainty and ideological capture of institutions. Journalism is a big NPR. So I'm going to talk about my project is coming up. So th these are very, very, very dangerous times. And certainty is only making it worse. Looking at people on the base of race, gender, et cetera, is only making it worse. Uh, and, you know, the, we can, you and I can sit here and piss and moan about it and complain all we want, but I'm going to build new things. You know, I'm going to build the University of Austin. I'm going to build my, I never used to give a shit about my YouTube channel. Now I realized that this is, it, this is extremely important to reach somebody that these are, these video pe people, you know, reading is down. This is not a value judgment. I'm just saying like YouTube is just the way to go. Um, and, and, and it's the way to produce, put out, and um, hopefully make an impact in this in the culture war, you know, ho hopefully make an impact so that we can steer the ship toward reason, rationality, truth, uh, evidence based belief system and individual rights for people. I, I, I hope so as well. I mean, and I, I started making the podcast because I was I was making documentaries for the BBC as I, on screen. So I was walking around sort of in, and it was exposing an exorcist or whatever it might be. Um, and actually uh, it sounds like fun. But yeah. Oh, that's fun. I'm going to send you it afterwards. Dawkins is a huge fan. He loves it. Uh, the exorcism film. I'm just um, what's name dropping. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I started getting told in meeting after meeting, like for the next one, like you're not going to be able to be on screen. We're going to have to get somebody who's from a minority background. And they just said 
anyone. They were just like, I was like, well, who? And they're like, anyone. And I was like, well, I've done all the journalism. I've done all the work. I'd rather actually go and do all this. And it, it lasted like five years. I couldn't make anything more. Every single production company was like on the same line with this. Um, and that sort of turned me to an extent. And that sort of got me, well, all I can do is make my own thing like you've done with your YouTube channel. All I can do is make the podcast now. But now I explore, it's about belief. So there's one minute, it's someone about religious and stuff. And one minute, it's this stuff. And people sometimes say, well, why are you doing all that woke up? What's that got to do with it? And I'm right. saying, well, it's, it's Everything. All the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because Mike Nana, oh, you should come to, if his film gets accepted in London, you should totally come to be my guest. Um, he did a film about the grievances affair. And one of the reasons he's mm. leaving is he's, he's an island too. All you island people have to talk about <laughs> growing up on islands. Uh, he, he, yeah. He's going to be living in uh, London, I, I believe, um, soon if he's not already there. Uh, but one of the things that he sp spoke about is, you know, there are all these questions and Mike's black, right? So there are all these, you know, questions, um, you know, how many minorities are in the film? And it's, you know, it's me, Jim and uh, Helen. So it's like three white people. Um, and how many, you know, I mean, it, it's not really about, they don't even look at the film. They just pre-screen the film for these exogenous variables that have fucking literally nothing to do with it. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, that's just something. The other thing that I think we should have a conversation about is what does that mean? What is entailed in that? You know, when you don't have a job, that's a whole nother conversation. But I think that, that that would be another one for the painter's tape and the sidewalk marks, right? Yeah. What does that mean? The painter's tape and the sidewalk? Oh, painter's tape. It's the, you know, the sidewalk exercise that I do, the street epistemology, oh, yeah, where yeah, I yeah, put yeah. the painter's tape on. Yeah, that would be a fun thing. You know, the question could be something like, um, um, should uh, uh, I really have to think about it? But does it have to know. be a minority quota in a film? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. And if so, you ever seen Cinema Parad Paradiso, the Italian film from the nineties? I was going to say a long time ago. I it's one of my favorite ever films, and the the famous scene at the end, and it's, I don't think it's a spoiler alert because it's from years ago, but is is basically this kid grows up in Italy in the nineteen fifties, and he goes to the cinema all the time. But the priests who live there cut out all the kissing scenes, and when he grows up, there's this beautiful music, and he's grown up. He's like sixty. He's gone to visit his old village, and a guy who died has given him this video, and it's all the old clippings of the of the kisses that had been removed from the films, and it's just the most beautiful, touching scene I've, I've ever. I just cried thinking about it. I'm getting emotional thinking about it. It. And what you were saying before about the way that sort of they, they don't even care about the film, they're just checking to make sure there's the right amount of quota or whatever in the film reminds me very much of that religious stuff from back in the nine, back in the 50s of cutting uh, erotic stuff from films. Yeah. And the idea is what's the value there? The value, the moral value that they're imposing is a value of equity. And so for them, the value of equity supersedes the purpose of the enterprise, which is journalism, very similar to the trans thing. Yeah. So once you understand equity, looking at historical markers and then redressing those in a way that forwards the careers and showcases people who whose answers have been historically marginalized, then the journalism can no longer do what it does. I mean, it could do what it does, assuming that the, the person occupying the position is of equal caliber, but there are only so many of those people to go around. And so what happens is you have to start drawing from ever drawing from pools of people who are not qualified. And in aggregate, this is important, in an aggregate, 
that um, makes it almost impossible for the field, in this case, you know, media or journals or whatever, to successfully do what it sets out to do because they don't have the most qualified people there. The consequence of that is this is very important. The consequence of that is the legitimation crisis, the legitimacy crisis, what we find ourselves in now. We don't trust our institutions because, because our institutions are not worthy of our trust. The, the, our institutions aren't being staffed by people who are most capable to do positions. They're being staffed by for another reason. And the consequence of that is that people will just not trust them. And the consequence of that in aggregate is that the society's pillars will start to crumble. I mean, it's inevitable if you don't trust your institutions. There's no other, there's no other, there's nothing else that could happen. No, and I'm feeling that that distrust. I'm really, I'm feeling it from a lot of people now. And I mean, I, I, I wasn't sure because I was getting told all the time that that minorities in the UK were underrepresented on TV screens. So there's a there's a neutral independent report called the Diamond Diversity Report that literally shows you that on the main TV channels in the UK over a period of six years, it was this was a couple of years ago when I looked into it, that white men are the most underrepresented by by quite some distance, pro rata. Uh, and when I saw that, that's when I thought, right, well, fuck this, because it's just none of it's true. Well, yeah, just, just, just well, of course, it's not. Well, the, there you go again, right? So, not if it's true, you just. So we believe in truth, but that, but that doesn't accord with the live testimony, and you always adjudicate on the side of live testimony. So even the word true is just not not useful for them. Um, but that that's why you know, like looking at things in the. If you were in the 90s looking at the rise of the internet and the collapse of, you know, when I was a kid, ABC, CBS, NBC, and then you had this little t TV, you had to physically move the, 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 this knob. Um, but then, you know, came the legacy and media have crumbled. We see now in, in the 2020s, the beginning of the, the uh, end of the uh, typical universities. They're, they're starting to, legacy institutions are starting to crumble all around us. And not merely because of the legitimation crisis. There are a lot of other, other reasons for that. But that's why it's so important that you build your channel, that I build my channel, that, that we, and, but even then you have to be, be careful because the woke people, the people who were indoctrinated into the ideology of critical social justice, they run Twitter, they run YouTube, you know, Ruben and Ruben was complaining to me for years about being demonetized. Gad sad complaining to me for years about being demonetized. You're good friends of mine. Uh, and I, I knew what the word demonetized meant, but I never knew why it was a big deal. And then once I started putting up my channel, I'm like, Holy shit, this could be tens of thousands of dollars. You're talking about like, I thought you just, they were talking about like five to 10. I just assumed like $5 a month or $10 a month. There's it's not, it's, you know, when Ruben is up in a million subscribers, Gad says, I don't know, half a million, who knows? I don't even know, but he's way up there and subscribe, maybe even a million. Uh, you know, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. If some woke person, I mean, look at cynical theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, your last two guests, that's, that that sold, I think, around 400,000 copies. And the New York Times left it off of its bestseller book in the same way they left Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules of Life off the bestseller book. So it's just it should just be an, a numerical thing, right? I mean, they put Ben Shapiro's book on there. Um, the blurb that was a great book, but they didn't. Um, 
but that's because it's not a th- it wasn't a throat kick in the way that cynical theories was. I mean, cynical theories was a masterpiece, a completely meticulous analysis and criticism of the new religion and propping up liberalism. And they couldn't take that because the ideology is explicitly against liberalism. So you got to you got to build you got to build new things and not not count on those legacy institutions. And I would go a step further. You have to work actively work to push those into ill repute, to disrepute. Where where can people find your your channel? Where else do you want to send them and all of that stuff? That's a good question. Where can people? I don't even know the name of my fucking channel. I'm so busy. Well, I can tell them. Just just search <laughs> Peter Bogosian on YouTube, and you'll find yeah. your channel. B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-N. I'm on Twitter. I'm on all the platforms. I'm, I've been actually stunned by the success of TikTok. Uh, I, I just can't it? believe. Yeah, I would never have been on it, but my daughter told me to be on it. She's like, you got to be on TikTok. I'm like, okay. So I just, I have a guy who just like puts out all the videos and stuff, but he's super, super good dude. But uh, yeah, but the, those, I'm, I, I think that those YouTube videos are so interesting. And I just want, can I talk real, how many minutes do we have left? I want to talk real briefly before i pass out from hunger so uh so i'm doing this this uh show called all things reconsidered there's no way you would know that name because it's an american thing it's npr it's kind of like bbc has you know i i i'm just heartbroken by it. i used to be an avid npr listener i every literally every time it was the only preset in my car for decades i can't listen to it anymore because it's all woke it's all about race it's all forwarding a narrative and so we're putting on a show all things right just have the posters i tried to put the posters on the wall but just haven't had time but um um all things reconsidered is going to be an analysis of news events with the guy's book i told you about um and it's going to be we have people sending in their testimonies and so I stopped listening to NPR when uh, we're going to have a reverse pledge drive. So instead of pledging to give money, I want people to pledge to not give money because it's um, in, until they change. Uh, and that's, that's the other thing. Oh, we're going to have a behind the scenes, but that's the other thing that's so interesting to me, man. What's so interesting to me is I was at a faculty meeting at um, the university at uh, Portland state university. And somebody, one of my colleagues said, every time I hear, something about Portland State University. It's, you know, an attack by the conservative media. And I said, I'm not going to say the guy's name. I said, listen, this is very simple to correct. This is not rocket science. When Bruce Gilley goes up for his class, he's now the most hated man at PSU in conservative political thought, you let him have his class. They rejected his class and they said it was because there wasn't enough diversity. Yeah, he could teach Larry Elder, Thomas Sewell, but that's not about diversity. It's about they genuinely believe the purpose of the institution is to promote, in fact, not only certain values, the president of Portland State himself has said that racial justice is his highest priority. Please fact check me on that. I've probably said that so many times. Um, um, and the NPR situation, you, you, it couldn't be easier to fix. You either push back on the people you invite or you don't push back on them. And then you invite people like Helen Pluckrose or people like on the other side who have published books that don't comport with the narrative, or you push back on everybody. You have a conservative guy in there or a libertarian guy in there or somebody else you have. You, you just, 
give actual diversity of thought where you have different opinions of people who come on, but it's not that. And it's a tax funded, uh, the funding structure is, is interesting, but it's just heartbroken because I used to, I used to rely on that for my news. I used to love NPR and now it's just, it's just this, it's woke madness nonstop. Do you think it might go the other way? Do you have any optimism? No, there's no chance. It's the same way. No, there's. that's why you have to build institutions. You can't count on anything legacy because the, in the academy, people have jobs for life and they're ideologues. So the, they've been captured. They're not. Look what they just did to Joshua Katz. I just put out a tweet about some some other guy. I can't remember his name. Who, but no, I don't think so. And I don't think NPR... I don't think NPR is capable of changing because I think that the people who occupy those positions look at their primary responsibility as the amelioration of bigotry, racism, homophobia, et cetera. But that's not what they're doing. They're just alienating, alienating people and making it so that people they're not legitimate. People can't rely upon them for general for sources of news because their bias is just so it's just so in your face. I mean, it's just it's just. I mean, it's, you know, it's not good, but we'll see, you know, I mean, I predict a Republican landslide and then people will blame racism, bigotry, homophobia, as opposed to, geez, you know, there's a fraction of the left who's gone fucking insane and that's pushing more people to go to the right, but they will never admit that. I mean, it's so obvious to anybody who looks at it for five minutes and it's obvious from exit polls. You know, why did you vote for it? Well, they tell you exactly why they voted for them. But again, an exit poll is a kind of objective fact, right? They don't want the, well, what, I mean, it's, that's it. It's so, it's just so stupid. The whole thing is so stupid. They're destroying my city in Portland again, night after night. I'm moving. The moment my daughter's out of high school, let the place burn. Bye bye. Did the best that I could. Police aren't arresting people. Ted Wheeler's a disgrace. They wanted they people still wanted to fund the police. Murder rates off the chart. Murders murder rates also off the chart in red states too. Uh, so it's not just a blue blue means a Democrat red Republican. It's not just a blue or red state thing. But you know that that people will stand by that the police will stand by while and I'm not blaming the police. I'm saying it's a complicated cultural situation and watch thugs destroy or attempt to destroy the courthouse, break windows and buildings. I mean, and then, you know, when it's posted to have all these other people deny it, oh, that didn't happen. Like, really? Like thousands of hours. Everybody has a cell phone. They're ubiquitous. They're timestamped. They're geolocated and you're denying it. I remember when I would, you know, take videos of, of, of the homeless in campus. People say that's not Portland. It's like literally fucking two blocks from my house. Really? Where is it? It's not Portland. So that's the other element of this. There has to be gaslighting. I've talked a lot, but I'm going to make a prediction. I predict that once this ideology starts and we can already see it, it's just too stupid to sustain itself. It's too idiotic. Um, you will see unprecedented gaslighting. You will see the kind of gaslighting that you simply could not fathom. I never believe that. I can't believe. And the very people who are the proponents of it, I can't believe people believe that. I mean, who is going to admit that they thought it was a good idea to experiment on the genitals of children. Like nobody is going to admit that. No sane person is going to admit that. I think the same thing. I think this, it's really frustrating again, because that part of me that gets annoyed by it wants to, I guess everybody in a sense, you and it's maybe it's immature, but you want to be able to go, mm-hmm, see who was right. But there's not going to be anyone to say that too. Yeah, they'd be gaslighted. 
I was just gonna say when I told a, a friend of mine, um, at, like this was like a year and a half ago, I remember telling her that she was saying, "Why don't you have any documentary stuff going on uh, to, on TV?" And I told her about that stuff with the minorities and all that. And she's she's American, and she just said. Andrew, that's racist. And I was like, it is, isn't it? She goes, no, what you're saying is racist. There's a genocide happening in America right now. And I was like, fucking hell, a genocide. She, she used the word Holocaust. She said there's a Holocaust happening in America. Yeah, so so uh, r r real quick, then I got to go. Sorry, I talked so much. I got a lot to un un pour out. Listeners on will love it. Um, so that's the question I came up with a few years ago. How many unarmed black men were killed in 2019? And I think other people have, picked up that question which is good because it's a good question it's kind of a litmus test for woke or or not even litmus, just like just tells you how much if someone is woke and if so how much my physical neighbor here in my home when i asked her that question she said twenty two thousand five hundred. i've asked members of uh, you know travis brown's doing the films um when in doubt and the woke reformation which are wonderful films so when i've asked a member of his film crew uh he said 70 7500 you know the numbers under 20 but the basic idea is if you actually believe that it was 22,500 maybe holocaust would kind of kind of fit like you know the higher that number is that you believed it that's why it's so important to calibrate your confidence in a proposition to your evidence for that proposition What a thrill it was to speak to such a big name. I love what Peter is doing and I think we all need to be a little braver and to do this a bit more to speak out against illiberalism. Obviously, we're not all in a position to risk our employment statuses, so don't do anything mad. But I do feel like the bad guys maybe in history are always the ones shutting down speech and debate and thought whether that comes from the left, the right, the centre, wherever it might be. I don't know, that's something I'm thinking at the moment. Go check out Peter Boghossian's YouTube channel for some fiery debates with students. It comes close to being what I would call a clash. There are clashes at times. Come watch the video version of this as well, this, this very interview. Just come along later if you want to re-watch it while chatting with me and some of the regulars on the sides, on this little side chat. You've got to be signed into YouTube for that. It's Monday and Thursday nights at 9 p.m. on the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast channel on YouTube. Come subscribe. God, I'm very hot right now. It's the second week of July as I record this in the UK and I'm roasting. Uh, I've just ordered a second fan for the house. My partner is using the current one and I can't even think straight. But thank you all for sticking around, for listening, for getting in touch and for reviewing this podcast. It means the world to me. I'll see you next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.